To women who hoped to evade the ticking clock of time, Dr. Frederick Brandt was the most potent drug dealer in the world. And the dealer got high on his own supply. From Imperative Entertainment and the team behind Broken Hearts comes a new series that will challenge everything you know about fame, fortune, and the fear of growing old. I'm Justine Harmon, and this is The Baron of Botox. Hi, Undisclosed listeners. Thank you so much for tuning into The Greg Lance Case and to tuning into all of our cases. We couldn't continue to do our work to help the wrongfully convicted without your support. And here's two more ways you can support us and our work. First, please support our sponsors because they support us. The products and services that we bring to you, they're sponsors that we love. So make sure to patronize them for yourself, for family, for friends, as a gift. Pass it along. And a big thank you to our sponsors who have stood by us for now nearly five years. Another way to support us, a really important way, by the way, is to actually subscribe to our podcast. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. And please make sure to leave us a five-star review because that helps other people discover this podcast. And the more people that listen, the better it is for our work. Thanks again. And now let's get into this week's episode. The state's trial against Greg Lance began on Wednesday, October 10, 2000, with a jury selected by lunchtime on the very first day. The jury was to be sequestered, and they were told to pack for a few days, check into a hotel, and then return to the courtroom. Circuit Court Judge Charles Lee presided over the trial, and he told the jurors, quote, make whatever arrangements you need to make, kiss mama goodbye, or daddy goodbye, or whoever you need to kiss goodbye, the dog, the cat, the canary, or whatever. Tell them you are being held captive by a judge from Marshall County, Tennessee, in the criminal justice complex in Putnam County. He told them they would only be there for three or four days, but they would end up being very long days, starting at 8.30 a.m. and ending at 8.30 p.m., wearing down the attorneys, the jurors, and spectators alike. Greg's family was there every day, including Becky, who brought along their now one-year-old daughter, Rebecca. The state was represented by District Attorney General Bill Gibson and Assistant DA David Patterson, and the defense represented by Public Defender Marshall Judd and appointed counsel John Nisbet. The trial lasted three days, and the jury deliberated less than five hours before finding Greg Lance guilty on all counts. And welcome to Undisclosed. My name is Rabia Chaudhary. I'm an attorney and author of the New York Times bestseller, Adnan Story. And I'm here with my colleagues, Susan Simpson and Colin Miller. Hi, I'm Susan Simpson. I'm an attorney in Washington, D.C., and I blog at The View from LL2. Hi, this is Colin Miller. I'm an associate dean and professor at the University of South Carolina School of Law, and I blog at Evidence Prof Blog. In opening statements, the state went in headfirst on the fact that much of what the jury would hear would be circumstantial evidence. General Gibson, as he was addressed in the courtroom, did a rather masterful job addressing the strength of the circumstantial evidence. He said, quote, Once in a while, there will be a circumstance or an item that will point toward an innocent person. 
Rarely will there be two things. As the number of circumstances and items pointing toward guilt increases, the likelihood of a person's innocence decreases. That is because a combination of these items and these circumstances taken together cease to be a coincidence. But what they do is they weave a web around a person and they hold him tight and they contain his guilt. Gibson laid out the state's theory of the case, which Greg was finally able to hear for the first time. Greg, he said, was in dire financial straits. He had filed for bankruptcy, and the victims were taking away his property, enraging him. Greg approached numerous people to ask them to assist him in killing the Klesnikows, but then he decided to do it himself. Greg was seen by witnesses practice shooting at his friend Mike Heron's farm three days before the murders. And when Heron contacted Greg to let him know the police were searching his property, Greg returned. He cut out a piece of the shed that he had been shooting at and burned it to destroy the evidence. On the night of the murders, Greg alone clepped into the Klesnikow home with two cans of gas, shot them, and set their house on fire, and then sped away. Finally, said the DA, Greg could be tied to the murder weapon because the cord and the flashlight attached to the gun were his, and the state also recovered forensics from his body, showing he was involved in the crime. There was, at least in the opening statements, not a single mention of the storage unit. Now, for the purpose of this episode, we will focus on the state's case and the evidence that convinced the jury of Greg's guilt. That evidence can be broken up into two categories, physical evidence and witnesses. We'll start with the forensic evidence tied to the gun itself and examine how the state argued that that evidence tied Greg to the crime. Forensic scientist Linda Littlejohn, who worked with the TBI's Trace Evidence Unit, testified for the state about the green cord samples she had been asked to examine. Ropes and cords, she said, are generally examined two ways, for physical comparison and fiber comparison. In this case, she said she'd been given three samples to compare, the green cord from the gun, green cord hanging from a tree at Greg Lance's house, and green cord which had been fashioned into a bow by a neighbor's 10-year-old son. When investigators found the bow, it was in the neighbor's yard. When they questioned the 10-year-old, he told them he found the cord in Greg's yard. Now, just to refresh your memory, the green cord hanging from a tree in Greg's yard was the one that Keith told investigators he threw into the tree after he rigged up fireworks to it. According to Keith, he himself had originally bought the cord from Walmart and used it to make a swing in the tree in the earlier part of 1998. The swing broke, leaving cord laying around, so on the 4th of July, Keith tied fireworks to it and threw it back up into the tree. The fireworks part of the story is important because of this. The cord found tied to the gun had dark smudges on it here and there. Investigators figured those dark spots came from the cord being burned from the fireworks. Little John testified that the physical comparison she did, just eyeballing the samples, found that all three were consistent in color and general diameter. She then used a comparison microscope to look at the fibers each sample was made of, an instrument that is essentially two microscopes held together so the examiner's field of view has two samples side by side. That way they can compare visually using their own judgment. Again, she found the samples consistent. All three of them visually looked the same. Next, she used a different instrument that would tell her what the fibers were made of. All three samples were nylon. She further did a melting point test to see if they were the same kind of nylon, and they were. So, she testified, I came to the conclusion they were all consistent and they could have a common origin. 
However, she went on to testify there was no definitive way to say the chords came from the same origin to the exclusion of any other origin. She could only say the chords could have come from the same spool or could have come from another spool of chord exactly like it. Interestingly enough, she isn't ever asked about the dark smudges on the cord from the gun, ever. And not a single lab report mentions them either, which would seem like quite an oversight if the cord was indeed burned. In other words, we actually have no idea if the smudges we can see in the pictures were even burn marks at all. They could have just been dirt, which is why maybe the prosecutor doesn't even bring any of that up at trial. Also, maybe he didn't bring it up because none of the cord collected from in and around Greg's property had any of the same markings. On cross-examination, Littlejohn confirms to defense counsel Nisbet that the cord is commercially available, but that she couldn't say if it was a common type of cord because she had never seen it before. Littlejohn said that she didn't buy cord and isn't exposed to it that much. However, about five months before the trial, she told defense investigator Ronald Lax something different. Lax had interviewed Littlejohn, and his report notes, quote, She stated all of the cord submitted was consistent. However, she would not be able to say exclusively the cord originated from the same role. She stated it was a fairly common cord, and she assured there was thousands of yards produced. So it was notable that, on the witness stand, Little John suddenly forgot how common she'd said before that kind of cord was. That was essentially it, though, for the substance of what Little John testified to at Greg's trial. You would think that the association between the murder weapon cord and the cord found on Greg's property would be stronger, given the fact that in closing arguments, General Gibson had this to rather dramatically say about it. If the defendant could do one thing different, there was one thing that he could change in his life, it would be that green cord. That cord wraps the defendant to the murder, and that cord frees others from the murder. That green cord ties the murder to the murder, and it's no coincidence. It is hard, powerful proof of guilt. However, he may not have been able to make such a grand declaration had the defense actually reviewed the lab results during Little John's testimony. A huge failure that is baffling. Because the results show that the lab had actually been provided five cord samples, not three, to examine and compare. The first sample was the one from Greg's tree. The second was a piece of green cord tied to a tarp on Greg's truck. The third was the cord from the 10-year-old neighbor's bow. And a fourth sample was loose cord found also in the yard of a neighbor, Peggy Elliott, who lived across the road. The lab compared the two samples that were found on Greg's property from the tree and the tarp in his truck to the two samples found at the neighbor's, the bow and the loose cord across the road. The result said that, quote, the physical comparison revealed them to be inconsistent with respect to diameter and color. In other words, the cord that was found on Greg's property didn't match the cord found on his neighbor's property. They weren't the same cord. But more importantly, did any of the cord match the murder weapon? Well, the lab compared the two samples taken from the neighbor's yard and compared it to the cord attached to the gun. The results found them to be consistent and stated that these three cords, quote, could have a common origin. The lab then separately compared the two samples taken from Greg's property, again, the cord from the tree and the tarp, and then they compared them to the cord from the gun. The results found that the cord from the tarp was too weathered to be compared to the murder weapon cord, so no physical comparison was made. And the cord from the tree? 
The cord that Keith said was likely the same cord as the murder weapon because, well, his firecrackers had left dark marks on it. Here's what the lab had to say about that. Quote, physical comparison revealed them to be inconsistent with respect to diameter and color. That's right. None of the cord actually taken from Greg's property, the cord the prosecutor said was the most damning evidence, even matched the cord tied to the murder weapon. Little John's testimony that all of the cords she compared could have come from the same origin was false, and it could have easily been impeached, but it wasn't. Silent Waves is a seven-part podcast series that tells the true story of 26-year-old Raquel O'Brien as she attempts to liberate herself from the trauma of childhood sexual abuse and a father with a dark secret. She records raw and brutally honest conversations with her family as they discuss the circumstances of their past for the first time. What emerges is a larger story as they find the freedom to confront their conflicting versions of events and reconcile with their past and each other. Raquel O'Brien uses her personal experiences and interviews with professionals to deconstruct societal taboos. Through vulnerable storytelling, she attempts to address and heal the traumas that haunt her family while demonstrating the power that survivors hold by using their voice to reclaim their stories. Silent Waves was produced in collaboration with Georgina Savage, a documentary filmmaker and photographer whose work focuses on social justice issues and marginalized communities. Silent Ways was initially independently released in 2018 to shining reviews, and many survivors of abuse reached out to thank Raquel for sharing her story and empowering them to do the same. And now Silent Waves is being re-released by the team at Casefile Presents, the brand new podcasting platform created by Casefile True Crime Podcast to help Raquel's important story reach more listeners across the world. The first three episodes of Silent Waves will be released on Monday, October 28th, with the remaining episodes released weekly from then on. So find out why reviewers have called Silent Waves powerful, phenomenal, bravely confronting, and a must-listen. Be sure to subscribe to Silent Waves on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Next, there was the flashlight. You may recall that Keith said he'd seen a similar black flashlight to the one strapped to the gun in Greg's truck. He was asked if his fingerprints may have been on batteries in the flashlight the police found, and he said maybe, but probably not because he didn't like to change the batteries. Keith didn't state that the murder weapon flashlight was definitely Greg's, but someone else did. At trial, Eric Tanner, Greg's friend who lived with him, who had borrowed Greg's truck and who happened to be at Greg's house the night of the murders, was shown a photograph of the flashlight when he was on the witness stand. He was asked, is that familiar to you? It is, Eric responded. How is it familiar to you? The prosecutor asked. I had seen it in Greg's truck before, Eric answered. Now you may recall in our episode about the friends who had turned against Greg that we couldn't find any of Eric Tanner's pretrial statements. We know he was interviewed at least twice, on the day of the murders and on September 24th, a month and a half after the murders, and we know this because these statements were referred to at the trial. But none of these files we have contain the actual original statements, at least not the full statements. 
We do have a part of the statement from September 24th, a partial transcript of the conversation between Eric and TBI agent Krovsik. It just so happens this partial statement discusses the flashlight. In this exchange, Eric tells Krovsik that he thinks he's seen a black flashlight in Greg's truck, a flashlight about six to eight inches long. Krovsik asks Eric what size batteries he thought Greg's flashlight would take, AA or C or full-size D batteries. AA? Krovsik asks hopefully. Not a little bigger than that, Eric responded. C-cell, you think? Yeah, said Eric. Yeah, because it would probably have been about that big around. Eric makes a circle with his finger and thumb about two to three inches in diameter. Okay, said Krovsik. About the size of maybe for a C-size battery? Right, responded Eric. This was not the answer that Krovsik was hoping for, though, because the flashlight attached to the murder weapon was slim, and inside of it were two AA batteries. So as sure as Eric was at trial that the murder weapon flashlight was the one from Greg's truck, two years earlier, when he gave this recorded statement, he said no such thing. Now, to the disappointment of all involved, including Greg himself, the gun and flashlight didn't have any fingerprints on it. They had both been wiped clean. The green cord had any prints on it, we don't know because it wasn't checked for prints. But as luck would have it, there were two fingerprints found on those AA batteries in the flashlight taped to the gun. TBI Special Agent Forensic Scientist Elizabeth Reed wasn't called by the state during the trial, but she was called by the defense. Reed specialized in latent print examination and had been given the assignment of identifying the prints found in those AA batteries. The battery, she said, had two identifiable latent prints on it, prints to which a comparison could actually be made. Reed had been requested by investigators to compare those two prints to their suspect, Greg Lance. The latent prints, Reed testified, did not match the fingerprints of Gregory Paul Lance. But Greg's prints weren't the only prints that she'd been asked to match. Philip Gentry and Agent Krofsik also asked Reed to compare the battery prints to fingerprints from Eric Tanner, Dave Anderson, Mike Snow, and a fourth acquaintance of Greg's, Lee Gabbard. Clearly, they were hoping that someone connected to Greg could also be connected to the gun, which would line up with their original theory that Greg had not committed the murders alone. Unfortunately for them, the fingerprints didn't match any of those men either, though. Reed received one last request to match fingerprints, but not from Investigator Gentry or Agent Krofsik. This request came from Putnam County Detective Gary Roach. He asked Reed to compare Keith Herbstry's fingerprints to the battery prints. But Reed couldn't do it, because while she had been provided Keith's name, unlike the other suspects, No one had submitted a fingerprint card for Keith, so she had nothing to compare the battery prints to. Reed got in touch with Agent Krofsik and asked that he provide her with Keith's fingerprint card, but he never returned one to her. Those latent prints from the AA batteries, to this day, were never compared to Keith Herbstreif, and in fact have never been matched to anyone at all. The gun, green cord, and flashlight weren't the only pieces of potential forensic evidence in the case that could tie Greg to the crime, but ultimately failed to. There was also the evidence they actually took from him, the GSR test, the shaved hair, and his shoes and socks. As a primer, a GSR test is a gunshot residue test, which tests for tiny gunshot residue particles that are created when a gunshot explodes, 
not unlike particles emitted when someone forcefully sneezes. These particles are likely to be found on the skin and clothing of a person holding a gun when it's fired, but are also found on people just handling a weapon that already has residue on it, or even found on physical objects that have been in the presence of residue. Like Susan said in an addendum earlier this season, GSR can even be found on a plastic bucket in Baltimore Crime Lab, as it has infamously been found in the past. The point being, these are microscopic particles that are emitted with an explosive force and can end up anywhere and everywhere, can be easily wiped off and easily transferred, and because of that, contamination is very easy to do. But in this case, luckily, contamination wasn't even a concern. Greg was swabbed with a GSR kit the day of the murders, and the kit was submitted to the TBI lab. Here were the results. Quote, elements indicative of gunshot residue were inconclusive. These results cannot eliminate the possibility that the individual could have fired or handled a gun. It's the classic, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence logic, but the findings were damaging enough to the state's case that they never presented this evidence at trial. They called no witness to testify about the GSR test, and again, bizarrely, neither did the defense. But the state did present evidence related to Greg's shaved hair and his shoes and socks. To refresh your memory, on the day of the murders, after an entire day of questioning, Greg was arrested on an outstanding warrant for a road rage incident he was involved in the weekend prior. That evening when he was booked, hair had been shaved from his hands. Now, Greg has always maintained that only his left hand was shaved, but the investigator's pre-trial statements repeatedly say hands, and at trial, investigator Robert Pollard testified that he shaved the backs of both of Greg's hands, all the way down to the tips of his fingers. He testified that some of the hair on his hands appeared to be singed to him, but he didn't see any burns on Greg's hands or fingers. He also didn't note any hair from any other part of his body, his eyebrows or facial hair, or the hair on his head being singed. Nevertheless, the shaved hair was submitted for analysis not to the TBI lab, but to the FBI lab. The results reported, quote, Examination of specimen K1 revealed several hairs exhibiting characteristics of having been burned. Karen Lanning was the FBI scientist who examined the samples, and she testified for the state at trial. Lanning told the jury that there were several hairs that were singed on the ends, turned black from being burned. The burned ends, she testified, were consistent with the flash of a gasoline ignition. But when she was pressed on cross-examination, she conceded that she couldn't conclusively state that the hairs were singed by a gasoline fire. All she could really say was they were singed by some kind of flame. She also said on cross that it wasn't possible to tell exactly how long ago the hair was singed, but because hair is alive and continues to grow and replenish itself, the singed hair couldn't have been on Greg's body for too long. It would be gone within six months. Finally, there were the shoes and socks. The end of episode two of this series, we noted that when Greg's Spalding sneakers and socks were collected right off of his feet, the socks were stuffed into the shoes and packaged together to be sent to the TBI lab. Sandy Evans, forensic scientist supervisor for the microanalysis section of the crime department, received that evidence for testing. Not just the shoes and socks, but 10 sealed cans, 11 sealed plastic bags, and two sealed brown paper bags. Seven of the cans held fire debris from the burned Kalisnikau home. Two of the cans held Greg Lance's shoes and socks. 
Evans tested the fire debris for ignitable liquids, in other words, petroleum-type products that are used as fire accelerants. Every sample taken from the Klisnica bedroom tested positive for a gasoline-range product, which includes all brands and grades of automotive fuel, including gasohol, a gasoline mixture which has alcohol mixed in to cut the price of the gas. Her analysis of Greg's shoes and socks revealed two products. First, a gasoline-range product, which again, could have come from an entire range of car fuel, and the second product, toluene. Toluene, she testified, is a common solvent found in glues, plastics, and many adhesives. It was very possible, she said, that the toluene came from Greg's tennis shoes themselves, because toluene was commonly used in making the soles of athletic shoes. Evans had been interviewed by defense investigator Ronald Lacks five months prior to trial, and at that time told him that because toluene was almost always present when they examined athletic shoes, the lab didn't think the toluene came from any other source. So the toluene wasn't a concern, but the gasoline range product on Greg Spalding's and Socks was. Unfortunately, because of the way they had been collected and packaged, Evans told Lax she couldn't tell if there was a gasoline product on both the shoes and the socks, or just the shoes, or just the socks. And she testified at trial, while there was no way to know exactly how long the gasoline product had been on the shoes and socks, it had to have been within five to seven days, after which gasoline evaporates too much to be identified as gasoline anymore. That was it for her testimony regarding the gasoline range products in Greg's shoes and socks. In closing arguments, DA David Patterson made a fairly simple argument about this evidence, which he called scientific. The shoes worn by Mr. Lance on the day that this was committed, hours after, have gasoline upon them. So do the socks. The house, the Klusnikau's house, has gasoline in it. This is scientific evidence that cannot be refuted at this time, I submit to you. There's nothing to refute that. One last thing about the shoes and socks, though. Remember Linda Littlejohn, who examined the cord? She had also tested Greg's shoes and socks to see if she could match any of the fibers from them to the samples taken from the crime scene, the Kalisnikau house. This is what she testified to. I examined the shoes and socks and identified as from the subject. Looked at those for any presence of fibers on the soles or anywhere on the shoes. I compared those with samples that were taken from the crime scene of the carpet. I did not find anything that was consistent between the two. That finding, does it include or exclude the suspect as being on the crime scene? No, it just means I didn't find any fibers on shoes. It is not uncommon not to find fibers on shoes. You just didn't find any fibers on the shoes? That match from the house, from the crime scene. Every day in the U.S., hundreds of thousands of people have to make decisions about their health. Treating diseases, managing pain. It can be scary, and it can be life-changing. But what happens if you're offered a supposed miracle cure, and you end up worse off than before? If you listen to Wondery's Dr. Death, you heard about 33 patients in Texas who went in for surgery and had their lives forever changed by an incompetent doctor. Host and reporter Laura Beal broke open that story, and now she's reporting on another important story stem cell therapy, and a bad batch that gave a group of patients disastrous results. The new podcast, Bad Batch, will investigate the multi-million dollar unregulated industry of stem cell therapy where greed and desperation collide, an industry that claims to treat pain, autoimmune diseases, infections, and even autism. It's a cautionary tale and an important listen. 
You can subscribe to Bad Batch in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now. There's also a link in the episode notes. The cord, flashlight, fingerprints, gas in the shoes and socks, and a few singed hairs was basically all the forensic evidence in Greg's case, both for and against him, depending on how you looked at it. If you're the defense, you'll argue that just because there's gas on his shoes and socks and a few hairs on his hands were singed, doesn't mean that he committed those murders. That there are perfectly innocent explanations for these things. And if you're the state, you'll argue that just because there was no gunshot residue on Greg and just because his fingerprints weren't found anywhere, doesn't mean he didn't kill the Klesnikows. He could have committed these murders and wiped away the evidence. At the end of the day, it's fair to say that none of the forensic evidence conclusively tied Greg to the crime in any way at all. But it's harder to say that about the witnesses who testified for the state. We'll start with the witnesses closest to Greg, the ones that any jury might think had no reason to make up any of what they were saying. Mike Snow, Rocky Harmon, Eric Tanner, and Keith Herbstreith. After putting on their law enforcement and forensic witnesses, the state presented these four men. Snow, you may recall, gave investigators a statement from jail. He was being held for assaulting his girlfriend, which had violated his parole for being convicted of assaulting her previously. In that jailhouse statement, Snow told Agent Krofsick that Greg had given him a $2,500 down payment for him to find a hitman. So Snow said that he called a person who called a person and ultimately it didn't work out because it just wasn't enough money to kill two people. And that was the end of that. Two years later at trial, Snow testified that Greg had approached him sometime in April of 1998, shortly after he had begun working for Greg. And Greg had told him that he was being foreclosed on his property. However, just as a reminder, the Klesnikows had actually filed the foreclosure complaint in May. But, Snow said, Greg had wanted to make the people foreclosing on him disappear. He wanted them killed, Snow said. Though, in his testimony, Mike Snow changed slightly what he said about a letterhead that Greg had given him. In his jailhouse statement, Snow had said that Greg had given him an actual letter with the victim's names and addresses on it. But at trial, Snow said he tore off the top of the letterhead with their information on it. A small detail, but it might make it easier to explain why he couldn't later find that scrap of paper versus not being able to find the entire letter. Snow went on to testify that along with doing concrete work, he was a drug dealer and used to collect money from people, making them pay through force or violence, which explains some of the assault charges on his record. Snow recounted the day that Greg had given him the $2,500 in $100 bills and had told him to, quote, get the ball rolling. A few days later, Snow said he returned to Greg and told him that it would take $10,000. But Snow testified he never actually talked to anyone about it. That person Snow had called who had called that other person, none of them ever existed, Snow said. His plan had been to take Greg's money and just keep it. Quote, get him for 10 grand. 
Snow testified that Greg told him to return his $2,500 because he knew someone in the National Guard that could do it cheaper. And if Snow didn't return it, Greg threatened Snow could end up dead. Snow returned the money, he said, but not long after, in June 1998, he said Greg approached him again and asked him if he knew where he could get a stolen gun. But Snow didn't want any part of it. He was trying to clean up for his girlfriend, Danielle. He told Greg he didn't need to be involved in it any further, and that was it. Him and Greg never spoke about it again. Now, for the record, Snow didn't mention anything about Greg soliciting a gun when he gave his initial statement from the county jail two years earlier. This information was completely new at trial. And after testifying against Greg, Snow was returned to jail, which is where he was apparently brought from to the courthouse. That's right, two years later, he was in jail again for assaulting his girlfriend, Danielle, again. At trial, defense counsel knew that Snow had been brought there from jail, and he pushed Snow about whether he received any benefit in exchange for his testimony. No, said Snow. The prosecutor, on redirect, followed up this question by confirming that Snow hadn't gotten any benefit from the state and was, in fact, still serving time. D.A. Patterson asked, quote, When you and I talked, you were in jail Saturday, weren't you? Yes, sir, responded Snow. Snow testified on Wednesday, October 11, 2000, which means D.A. Patterson had spoken to him on Saturday, October 7th. But a copy of Snow's full criminal record shows this. Snow was arrested on October 6th of that year, and he was released from jail on Sunday, October 8th, the day after D.A. Patterson spoke to him at the prison and three days before he testified at trial. Rocky Harmon testified next. After identifying himself, Rocky said that Greg was his friend for 14 years and would always be his friend. It was very difficult for him to be there testifying against him that day, said Rocky. Rocky testified that in June of 1998, He remembered Greg asking him how much it would cost to kill someone, and he responded he thought it would be $10,000. Rocky had been drunk during that conversation, he said. Then he testified about the calls he said he made to Greg on the day of the murders. Remember, they were the calls the phone records showed didn't actually happen. Nevertheless, at trial, Rocky significantly changed why he said he made those calls. In his initial statement, it says that he made the calls to ask Greg if his problem with the Kalisna cows had been taken care of. But at trial, Rocky now said this. I asked him, did you get your little problem taken care of, referring to when he wanted me to, to a conversation we had earlier about me being a bouncer and roughing up or bouncing somebody out of his trailer park, a guy or tenant or somebody that wasn't paying rent. The prosecutor tried again to get him to repeat what he had stated two years earlier. Okay. In June, he had asked you about how much it would cost to kill someone, and you called him in August after the killings and asked him if he had taken care of his problem? Yes. That is when you were asking him about the people that were trying to screw him out of his trailer park? I am not saying that. I don't think that's true. I think I was referring to the bouncer. I mean, bouncing the guy out of the trailer park that wasn't paying his rent because I didn't, you know, I wasn't under the impression because Greg would not let me know anything about, you know, really much of what was going on about his trailer park. I didn't know much about it. I didn't know their names or where they lived or nothing. While the state couldn't land that one, they did get Rocky to testify that at some point, Greg had told him to keep his mouth shut, the police talked to him, and also that Becky had mentioned that a wife couldn't testify against her husband. Repeatedly throughout his testimony, Rocky stated he was confused, and during cross-examination, defense counsel Nesbitt was able to draw out why that might have been the case. My name is John Nesbitt. Will you tell the jury what medication you are currently on? 
I am on Zyprexa, Lithium, Prozac, Wellbutrin, Buspar, Acupril, and Prolset. Currently under care of a physician or a mental health facility? Yes, I am. How long have you been suffering from this condition? Three years. Three years. How many mental institutions have you been in during that three-year period? I have been, I would say, 10 mental institutions altogether. Would it be fair to say that one of the mental conditions you have is that you got split personalities? Yes. Do you know which personality was talking to TBI Agent Krausik when he talked to you? I think it was Rocky. You think it was? Pretty sure about that? I am pretty sure about that. Nesbitt then asked Rocky about being intimidated by the TBI, and he admitted that he was. How did they intimidate him, asked Nesbitt. They are the law and badges, and they said, Rocky, we heard that you someone's going to pay you 50 bucks, and you said you would do it for 50 bucks, implying that I said I was going to do it for 50 bucks. I said, no way. They was laughing about it and said that was a joke. And that was it from Rocky Harmon. The next witness called was Eric Tanner. Eric had met Greg in April of 1998 during National Guard drill. They became friends then, and by June, Eric began working for Greg, doing construction. Not long after, Eric moved in with Greg and Becky into the four-bedroom brick house at the Ford Mobile Home Park. On direct, Eric was asked about the night of August 4th, 1998, the night the Klesnikows were murdered. Eric said he'd gotten home from work around 5 p.m., and Greg had been there, but then went out again. Becky was also out and returned home around 9.30, he said, which contradicted what Becky, Kay, and Keith had told investigators. Remember, Becky had been out for a girls' night with Kay, and Keith had joined them at Kay's trailer. They had dinner together, drank, and watched MASH, and then Keith and Kay dropped Becky off back at her home at around 10.30 p.m., according to all three of their statements on the day after the murders. Eric then testified that Becky was very, very drunk and upset because she knew Greg was out with another woman. Eric testified that he went to sleep on the couch at 11 p.m. and then awoke to see Greg and Becky in the kitchen between 12 and 12.30 a.m. Eric said he went back to sleep then and then woke up in the morning and Greg and Becky were both home. Greg, he testified, was wearing the same thing he'd been in the night before shorts, a shirt, and sneakers. Eric was shown a picture of the green cord attached to the gun, and he testified that it was from Greg's tree, and that the flashlight, as we noted earlier in the episode, was from his truck. Eric testified that on Sunday, August 2nd, they'd had National Guard duty, and he and Dave drove Greg's truck. Greg had Dave's red car, which he identified from a picture for the jury. The most damning thing he testified to, however, was that Greg had asked him about getting a gun, a, quote, hot gun. Two or three weeks before the murders, Eric testified, he and Greg had a conversation about a gun. Eric had a friend in another town who had a gun, and Eric mentioned it to Greg. But Greg didn't want that gun. He wanted a gun that had no papers. He said he wanted a hot gun, testified Eric. After the murders, Eric tried to talk to Greg about the gun he had asked for, worried that Greg had indeed killed the Klesnik house. But Greg told him he didn't want to talk about it, and so it never came up again. 
Now, remember we mentioned earlier in this episode that we found a partial transcript of a conversation between Eric and Agent Krofsik from about a month and a half after the murders, the one where he described the flashlight in Greg's car as needing C-sized batteries. Well, in that same conversation, Eric also mentions this gun. He told Krofsik that a few weeks before the murders, Greg asked for a gun. Quote, a hot one. He said stolen. Just one that didn't have papers or was traceable. He said that? Asked Krofsik. Yes, he said he didn't want papers. I assume, you know, that's what I assumed. But Krofsik wanted to know what Greg actually said, not what Eric assumed. Okay, but what I want to know is what he said. He said he wanted a hot one, Eric replied. But did he ever use that word that he wanted a gun that couldn't be traced? Krofsik asked again. In a roundabout way, Eric responded. Okay, but he never actually used those words. No, he didn't say that, admitted Eric. Finally, from among Greg's friends to testify is Keith Herbstreith. Keith begins by testifying that he knew Greg from early 1998, when Greg was his landlord at the apartment building that Greg owned with his previous wife. Not long after, Keith moved into the house in the trailer park with Greg and his girlfriend Becky, along with a slew of other Greg employees, and managed the park for Greg. A few months before the murders, Keith testified, Greg's personality began to change. His personality, said Keith, became, quote, inward. He became less talkative, and he was frustrated with the foreclosure. Keith testified that a few weeks before the murders, Greg had asked Keith if he knew anyone that Greg could hire to kill the Kalisnikows. Keith used to drive limos in Nashville and knew a lot of people, so Greg asked him if he had any connections there that would kill Victor. He never said both of them. He always just said Victor, testified Keith. Which is interesting, because according to Mike Snow's jailhouse interview, Greg had only wanted to kill Awa. Nonetheless, Keith said he ignored the request. But then, a week or so before the murders, Greg had another conversation with him, Keith testified. He was very upset, and he was very angry that, in his mind, these people were taking away his home, his livelihood. Everything that he'd worked on, built. What they were doing, though it was legal, was not morally right. He was incredibly upset that they were going to legally steal his home and his livelihood from him. That is the way he said it, and that is the way he felt about it. They were going to legally steal his home and his livelihood. Keith testified that he told Greg he could beat the Kalisnikows in court. But Greg said, no, I'm going to have to kill them. Much of this part of the testimony is the same or similar to Keith's September 28, 1998 interview, the one he gave after meeting Krofsik at the Waffle House. But then he testifies to something he had clearly not said before. He told the jury that on Sunday, August 2nd, the day that Greg had swapped the cars with Dave, he saw Greg at the trailer park that afternoon. Here's what Keith testified to about their exchange that day. I told him, I said, when Kay gets off work, we are going to take the boat out. He said, well, we are going to go, and he didn't say who we were, but he said, we are going to go out to my Karen's farm and shoot some guns. I said, oh, wow, that sounds like a lot of fun. I would like to go, but I've already made plans to do this with Kay. He said, that is all right. Don't worry about it. He was almost like discouraging me from going. He said he was going out there to test fire, not test fire. He said, I am going out there to fire some guns, shoot some guns. Now, you may recall from episode five that this is completely different from Keith's previous police statements, where he told Krofsik repeatedly that he didn't know where Greg was going to go that afternoon. He said he and Kay had left to go fishing, and he knew that Greg had plans, but didn't know what those plans were. Moving along, Keith testified that he could identify both the flashlight and the cord attached to the gun. 
The flashlight looked like the one that Greg kept in his toolbox, he said, and the cord he had bought from Walmart for his boat. He even testified to how the dark spots got in the cord attached to the gun. Oh yeah, 4th of July. We took... Firecrackers are a lot louder if you can make them go off in midair. So we took a whole lot of firecrackers and tied them to a cord. The tree is incredibly tall. The branch that it was hanging from was probably 30 or 35 feet up. I strung it and lit the fuse and pulled the cord, and they started scattering everywhere, and the fireworks... Basically, I used it to set off firecrackers. Did you later see that there were dark marks on the cord? Yes. The DA then turned Keith's attention to the storage unit. Keith testified there were open units available at the Ford Trailer Park, and he knew of no reason that Greg would have had to rent a unit elsewhere, and in fact, he had no knowledge that Greg had done so. Finally, he testified that he knew his statements to the police had changed over time, but explained it was because he was scared for his personal safety. That if he told the police what he knew, and it wasn't enough to get Greg arrested, he could put his own life in jeopardy. But by the time he gave his later statement, in late September 1998, Greg had left for Arizona, and Keith felt safer. He had all his ducks in a row, and Keith himself also left, so nobody knew where he was going. On cross-examination, Nesbitt showed Keith a photograph of him breathing fire. The party trick where a person blows a stream of some kind of fuel over an open flame, creating a stream of fire like a dragon. The prosecution objected to the photo and to this line of questioning. Nesbitt responded, It's an arson case, Your Honor. Surely, said Judge Lee, you are not saying that this witness started this fire with his breath. No, said Nisbet. He just wanted to show that Keith was very familiar with fire, which is kind of strange because most people are familiar with fire. But what was really happening is that the defense wanted the jury to consider Keith an alternate suspect without actually saying so. Keith went on to explain that it was a trick he learned from a carnival And he did it about a half dozen times at parties, because he said more than once he was the life of the party, but then he stopped doing it when he once laughed as he performed the trick and snorted the flame up into his sinuses, which he said killed him for three days. Nesbitt then questioned Keith about his own stakes in the trailer park, how much he got paid, how he personally sold trailers to the tenants and collected money from them. And Nesbitt brought up the burn barrel in Greg's driveway, a rusty 55-gallon drum with holes in it. We burned a lot of trash, Keith testified. Paper, wood, logs, two-by-fours, leftover construction lumber. And it was a social activity, too. A place for folks in the park to gather around, have a beer, talk. On the morning of the murders, Nesbitt asked Keith, did he recall anyone burning anything in that barrel? And Keith responded, I have thought about this, and I have thought about this. I recall seeing Greg empty trash out of his truck into the burn barrel and burning it. I just can't remember if it was on the 4th or the 5th. I have given it every bit of thought I could for two years. I cannot tell you if it was on the 4th or the 5th. Finally, Nesbitt closes his cross-examination by asking Keith about that last conversation he had with Greg before leaving Tennessee. Keith had told Greg that he was going to move to Florida because they don't extradite for child support. Did he recall that? Keith said yes, he did, because he'd told Greg that so that he wouldn't know where he was really going. And it was a good excuse to use at the time. But, Press Nesbitt, you're about $10,000 or $11,000 behind in child support, aren't you? Keith responded, that's correct. And Nesbitt asked, the DA's office, their child support division is not going after you, are they? Well, Keith said, 
He had only been back in the state for six months. They haven't had time to go after him yet. Did you ever have any conversation with the DA about the child support issue? Nesbitt asked him. Only once, said Keith, because someone was trying to subpoena those records for this trial. The state presented four witnesses to testify about the many shady happenings on the Heron Farm in August of 1998. The first of those four was Joe Brown, the companion of Judy Wells who liked to do a little snooping on his neighbor Mike Heron's farm. Joe testified about where he lived, how he knew Heron, and the proximity of his property to the farm. The DA asked him if he had a pretty good view of what was going on over at his neighbor's, and Joe responded that yeah, he did. In August of 1998, he knew Heron wasn't living on his farm anymore, though he wasn't sure when he had actually moved away. But the farm should have been empty on the morning of August 2nd, 1998, when he heard a bunch of shooting. He heard the shooting as he was checking his fence, but he couldn't see anybody, so he went back into his house and had some iced tea. He then decided to go check on his cows that pastured on Heron's farm, and he still didn't see anybody. Then he got in his pickup truck and drove up the road so he could pass the farm and that's when he saw a little square-built red car hiding behind the garage. Because he had a bad eye, he testified, he couldn't tell the plate number, but he saw that it had Humphrey County tags. Joe was shown a picture of Dave Anderson's car and asked if that was it. It looks like it, he responded. It was a red car. That's the only thing I can tell you. Joe then returned home, and his old lady Judy left around 12.30 or 1 to go get her newspaper. Later that same evening, he went over to the farm to see if he could find anything, any shells. He didn't find any, but he did find two five-gallon gas cans full of gasoline. He knew they were full because he poked them with his walking cane, he said. How long had they been there, asked the DA. Joe responded that they had not been there the day before, and they hadn't been there a week before when he and his neighbor, Steve Powell, had gone through the barn. He told Steve about the gas cans the next day, on Monday, August 3rd, and Steve came out to look at them. Joe testified that they were still there on Monday evening, and on Tuesday morning, and Tuesday evening because apparently he had checked the house twice that day. But on the morning of Wednesday, August 5th, the day of the murders, they were gone. Joe testified that he had also seen a U-Haul truck on the evening of Tuesday, August 4th, pulled up in the Heron driveway around dusk. His neighbor Steve Powell also had seen the truck and saw a man sitting in the truck with the door open and the tailgate raised up. The truck had a silver top and bottom and an orange stripe. A couple weeks later, he called the police after reading about the murders and making a connection, he testified. The Tuesday after talking to the police, in the late afternoon between 4.30 and 5.30 p.m., he said he heard two men talking on the Heron farm and thought he heard a generator and a skill saw running. Then he saw smoke coming up from the farm, but he didn't think anything of it until the next morning when he went to go check on his cows again. He never, by the way, mentioned hearing any men talking or a generator or the saw running in his police statements two years earlier. Joe then testified that on the next day he went over to the farm and he saw a burn pile with big blocks of wood and old coals and something glinting in the sun. He used his knife to raise up a piece of wood and he saw a bullet. So the next day, he said, the police came out and dug up around the farm and found lots of bullets during their search. Nesbitt cross-examined Joe, and he asked Joe about the farm being empty and who was allowed on it. Only him, said Joe, and no, not many people went out there to target practice. He rarely heard shots out there. 
Nesbitt questioned him about the bullet he had found in the burn pile. The bullet was in a piece of wood, said Joe, a wood cut for firewood, a log in other words. The shooting on August 2nd, Joe said, sounded like it came from three different weapons, and over the course of three hours, he heard no more than six shots from what he thought was a bigger weapon, a 45 maybe. And the two men he heard talking? Was that the same day that two men in a blue and white truck came to his house, asked Nesbitt? No, it wasn't, responded Joe. The day those two men came was the day the police were already on the farm searching. Two men came rolling to his house in an old blue Ford truck, asking if he had rabbits to sell. He didn't, Joe testified, but he had a cage that he gave them, and as this was happening, the TBI showed up. The agent with a forehead long enough for two people demanded to know their names. It turned out, said Joe, that the two fellows lived less than half a mile away from him. Those two fellows were Brian Brinker and Marlon Ray, and they were two of the four witnesses the state called to testify about all that had happened at the Heron Farm. Brian Brinker was called first. Brinker testified that in August of 1998, he had been out towards the Heron Farm twice, in fact, in the same few days. Both times he went there, he was with his friend and construction co-worker, Marlon Ray. The first day, he said, they had gotten out of work and were driving past the Heron Farm when they saw smoke. Marlon Ray had been interested in renting the house on the farm, but as far as Brinker knew, the owner wasn't there anymore. When they saw the smoke, he testified, they thought maybe he had returned. They pulled up to the house and looked in through the windows and looking around at the place. There was a little shed and a barn on the property, and they saw smoke coming from there, so went back to see if it was Mike Heron, but it wasn't. There was a gentleman there, Brinker testified, burning dresser drawers and a burn pile. The man was dark-complected, had black hair, and was, quote, Mexican-looking about five foot eight and 170 pounds. The second time Brinker went out there, about a day or so later, he actually drove to the end of the street, looking to buy rabbits from the man that lived down there, Joe Brown. While they were there, law enforcement showed up and began questioning them. Marshal Judd cross-examined Brinker and first asked him about what time he had been out on the farm the first time, the time he saw the Mexican-looking man burning something. Between 3 and 6 p.m., Brinker responded. Brinker testified that he spoke to the man for 10 or 15 minutes, asking about the house, and the man had told him he was just cleaning up the place and that he had done some work on the house. Other than himself, Marlon Ray, and the Mexican-looking man, he didn't see anyone else on the property. He thought the man burning the dressers had a white truck with him, but he wasn't sure. Prior to August 1998, Brinker had been out to the Heron Farm with his son when Mike Heron was still living there, he testified. He had spoken to Heron about doing some remodeling on the home, and at that time, Greg Lance happened to be present. Greg offered him a job doing concrete work, Brinker told the jury. A few weeks after seeing the man burning the dressers, Brinker testified he had commented that the cabinets in the Heron house would look great in his own house, and Marlon Ray offered to steal them and sell them to him, but he didn't actually do so. Around that same time, Brinker said, the police came out to interview him for the first time. It was a bunch of them, maybe four. TBI, FBI, the fire marshal, and a deputy from the police department was his impression. Now, there's no record of that interview, and Marshal Judd notes that on the record, that the defense was never given a copy of Brinker's initial police statement. But, testified Brinker, he never told the police about having been at the farm the day he and Marlon Ray saw the man burning the dresser drawers. 
He was afraid, he testified, that it was some kind of drug thing and he and Ray didn't want to be involved. He only told the police about the day he went to buy the rabbits. Brinker was next interviewed by the police two years later in June 2000, a few months before the trial. At that interview, he was shown a photo lineup and while he wasn't sure if he could identify the man he saw burning the dressers, he initialed two pictures that looked the closest to him. One of those pictures was of Greg Lance. But then, Brinker testified, he returned to Agent Krofsick and told him he actually could identify the first picture as the right man. Once again, the picture of Greg. Why, Marshall Judd asked him, didn't he just tell Krofsick, hey, the guy who was burning the dresser drawers was the guy who offered me a job, Greg Lance? Well, he wasn't sure, responded Brinker, not until he saw the photo lineup. Finally, Judd asked him about what time he had seen the man burning the drawers on that day in August 1998. Brinker had testified to seeing him between 3 and 6 p.m., but in the statement he had given to Krofsick just a few months before trial, he had told him it was between 1 and 3 p.m., right after he had gotten off work. Oh, well, he was more accurate now, said Brinker, after he had some time to think about it. And on redirect, District Attorney Patterson asked Brinker just two questions. Do you see the person today that you saw on the farm that day? Yes, I do. Tell the jury who it is. It would be the middle man sitting right there in the blue checkered shirt. He was pointing to Greg Lance. Marlon Ray testified next. Immediately, the prosecutor asked him to identify the man he had seen burning something on Mike Heron's farm in August of 1998. Ray pointed at Greg, who sat at the defense table with his attorneys. Ray testified that Greg had been burning a pile of chest of drawers and trash around 2.30 to 3 o'clock p.m. The very next day was the day they returned to ask about the rabbits, Ray said. A few weeks after that, a TBI and county officer came to interview him, and then the next time he heard from them was not long before trial, in July 2000. This time he said they brought a picture lineup with them. He identified Greg with no difficulties, Ray testified. He testified that also he told them during that initial interview that he had been on the farm before the day they were looking for the rabbits, and saw a man with a burn pile cleaning up trash there. On cross, Marshall Judd asked Ray if he remembered the date that he had seen the man with the burn pile. No, said Ray, he didn't remember the exact day. It was sometime in the end of August, and it had been his first time ever on the farm. The individual doing the burning, he said, had a dark color, short bed pickup truck with lawn and construction tools in it. Ray never spoke to him, he testified. Brinker had done all the talking. But he overheard him say he had just put a roof on the property, and the roof was his down payment on the property. Ray testified that he never told Brinker that he would steal Mike Heron's cabinets. When they had looked into the house windows, it looked pretty trashed out to him, he said. Did he know about the Kalisnikows being killed, asked Judd. Not immediately, said Ray, but he did eventually. When did you become aware of that? About a year later, when the TBI came to Indiana and arrested me for it. I was told I was charged for a double homicide of two little girls. Who told you that? That is what one of the county officers up there, which is a friend of mine, of my family, said that a fax had come across and said I was being charged with a double homicide or wanted for questioning of. This is the first I had heard about it. Now, it's not entirely clear what's going on here. Ray seems to be referring to two different things, the murder of two little girls and the Kalisnikow murders. Unfortunately, no one ever clears it up either. But what is clear is that Ray was charged with something that he thought was connected to this crime. At the time of the trial, in fact, Ray was in prison in Indiana, but not for any double homicide. He'd been arrested for violating probation. 
for what it's not clear on the record, and been brought to Tennessee to testify at this trial, and also because he had an assault and battery charge pending in the state. Like so many of the other witnesses in this case, he had a long record of petty crime, but nothing as serious as murder. But it seems that didn't stop the authorities from implying they could charge him with this one. You would think the state would put on Judy Wells or the other Mike Heron neighbors, the Powells, to testify about what happened on the farm in August of 1998, but they didn't. The final state's witness to testify about all that is someone we haven't mentioned until now. His name is Jerry Gardner. Gardner was a childhood friend of Mike Heron's. They'd grown up in California together, and in 1991, Gardner had moved to Rickman, Tennessee. Mike had moved there a few years after him. He had done construction work with Mike over the years and testified that he knew Greg through Mike. He had seen Greg at Mike's place and at the trailer park. He recalled at the time he first met Greg that Greg was putting on a new roof on Mike's house. It just so happened that on the first week of August 1998, Gardner had been out at Mike's farm. It was the first weekend of August, in fact, and over the weekend, he testified, a friend of his had rented a cabin on Cordell Hole Lake, about 50 miles away from the Heron Farm in Rickman, Tennessee. He'd gone up to the cabin with a female friend, her brother, and his wife, two couples in all, for the weekend. They left on Sunday afternoon, August 2nd, the day of all the shooting at the Heron Farm, and headed back towards Rickman. And these dates, by the way, were confirmed by investigators who found receipts for that cabin rental. The girls, Gardner went on to testify, had had a few beers and needed to go to the bathroom. Gardner knew Heron's place was vacant and that they could pull into there so they could use the restroom, so they stopped at the farm around 3 or 4 p.m. When Gardner got there, he saw Greg Lance at the farm. Greg walked up from behind the garage and seemed kind of surprised to see him, Gardner said. Greg told him he was doing some target practice and Gardner saw a little pistol, a 22 or something, in Greg's waistband or holster. He wasn't exactly sure. Gardner also saw a little red car parked by the side of the garage. On cross, to be honest, Nisbet didn't ask anything that challenged any of his testimony. But in case it escaped you, and there's every reason it should given how complicated this case is, Jerry Gardner was on the Heron farm with another man and two women on the afternoon of August 2nd, 1998. Remember Judy Wells telling the police that she had seen a couple of women out there, falling all over each other and a man sitting next to a brown car with a trunk open. The police had initially thought that was Greg and Keith out there with their girlfriends, Becky and Kay. It turned out it wasn't them at all. It was Jerry Gardner and the rest of his party. Which is interesting because Gardner said his interaction had been short. He'd only been stopped at the farm for about five minutes which means that Judy Wells coincidentally saw them in those five minutes. But Wells, when shown a photo lineup to identify the man standing next to the brown car, had pointed out Greg Lance. She was wrong, of course, because that man was Gardner. It could explain why the state didn't even bother to put her on the stand at all. But the defense did. And on the stand, she testified that while she had seen the brown car with a man standing by the trunk and two inebriated-looking women and a red car parked by the garage, she didn't see anyone else at all. And all this happened, she said, when she went out to get her newspaper around 1.30 p.m., before she even called the police. The call to the police took place after she saw this group of people at the farm, and the call out to the police station showed the call came in at exactly 2.36 p.m. Which means the gardener was wrong about the time he was at the farm and said he saw Greg, 
It couldn't have been between 3 and 4 p.m. It had to be before Judy saw Gardner and the others, found it suspicious, and then called the police. It had to be before 2.36 p.m. But at 2.36 p.m. on August 2nd, 1998, Greg was at the Ford Mobile Home Park, where Keith and Kay saw him with Dave's red car before they left to go fishing. Thank you, Your Honor, ladies and gentlemen of the jury. I am tired. My body is tired. My mind is tired. I think my teeth are tired. I think everything about me is tired. I know you are too. We have been working day and night to try to figure out what has happened. I ask you to bear with me tonight. This will be the last time you'll hear from me in this case. That was the way that Marshall Judd, public defender, began his closing arguments. Assistant District Attorney Patterson had already finished up, laying out the state's case in his closing, using the word scientific four times in describing the evidence. The matching bullets from Heron's farm and the gun? Scientific. The gas at the crime scene and Greg's shoes? Scientific. The green cord? Scientific. Patterson went over the motive, the foreclosure, and the bankruptcy timeline, the hearing that was set for the same week the Klesnikows were murdered. He reviewed the witnesses, the many witnesses he argued had no reason, no motive to independently identify Greg as being on the Heron farm. Finally, of course, he reminded the jury of all the different men who said Greg had either solicited them to kill the Klesnikows or told that he was going to kill them himself. Rocky Harmon, Mike Snow, Eric Tanner, and Keith Herbstreith. And that's when he made the statement that we noted at the top of this episode, that, quote, once in a while there will be a circumstance or an item that will point towards an innocent person. Rarely will there be two things. As the number of circumstances and items pointing toward guilt increases, the likelihood of a person's innocence decreases. That's because the combination of these items and these circumstances taken together cease to be a coincidence. But... What they do is they weave a web around a person and they hold him tight and they contain his guilt. Patterson went on to ask the jury 18 times in the remainder of his closing arguments whether all the evidence presented together could be a coincidence. It's interesting to note, though, that again, like in his opening statements, there is no mention of the storage unit which is even more strange now given that the state had actually put Mary Hobson, the woman who rented the unit to Greg, on the stand during the trial. But what they hadn't managed to do was present any evidence as to what he was doing at the unit or what he was ever even storing in it. So maybe that's why they just left it alone, hanging out there for the jury to draw their own conclusions. Suspicious behavior, an inference of malfeasance, just one more thing to add to the mix of all the things that just couldn't be a coincidence. Unfortunately, Greg's defense counsel didn't leave it alone. After that weary opening about how he was so tired, Judd went on to deliver kind of a rambling, unstructured closing argument in which he raised more questions than actually answering them for the jury. We don't know if the sock or the shoe or either one of them didn't have gas on them. Maybe the sock had gas and the shoe didn't. We don't know. We still don't know where that, how that gun got from Robert Shepard to who committed that murder out there. 
No way, shape, form, fashion do we know how it got out there. Eric Tanner. Eric Tanner changes his story a couple of times. He comes back at 12.30 to the trailer, then it is 1.30, now it is back to 12.30. What is the correct time? I don't know. I don't know. Keith Herbstreit. Okay, Keith worked there. Some mentioned that he didn't have any motive. I don't know whether he did or not. They didn't investigate him. Who knows? You get the picture. But then he also brought up the storage unit, telling the jury for the first time why Greg had rented it. It was because he had expensive construction equipment that he needed secured, and he was out there every morning to pick it up and every night to drop it off. But the state got the last word, and DA General Gibson delivered a response to the defense closing. And this time, he kind of drove home the suspiciousness of the storage unit. Well, once the defense brought it up, he probably figured he should address it. He raised how odd it was that it was rented during the week of the murders, how the times it was accessed was suspicious, how it was abandoned, and how no one but Greg had access to the code. But he still didn't lay out any coherent narrative on what the state alleged Greg was actually storing out there. He never once said that Greg was storing anything related to the murder out there. And then DA General Gibson went back to how he had opened up the trial three days earlier, back to the fact that the case was largely circumstantial. Quote, Tuesday during the jury selection, we promised you a circumstantial case. We talked about it in terms of a jigsaw puzzle, a puzzle made up of small pieces, tiny pieces that fit together to make bigger ones that begin to show the picture. Those bigger pieces fit together to show the complete picture. The state in this case has proven the guilt of this defendant. We have given you the proof that you would need to form a moral certainty of his guilt to return a verdict of guilty. The closing arguments and the trial of Greg Lance ended on Friday, October 13, 2000, a little after 10 p.m. at night. The next day, on Saturday, October 14, the sequestered jury began deliberating at 9 a.m. and returned a verdict around 2 p.m. They had apparently, as D.A. Gibson had asked them to do, formed the moral certainty of Greg's guilt, returning a verdict of guilty on all counts. But, like in any and every wrongful conviction, the state had it all wrong, and so did the jury. And here's the thing, none of it was a coincidence. Next time on Undisclosed. Greg Lance has been in prison since 1999. If you'd like to drop him a note of support or a card or anything to let him know that you're following his story and thinking about him, address your letters to Gregory Paul Lance, ID 003-25463. The Bledsoe County Correctional Complex, B-L-E-D-S-O-E, Bledsoe County Correctional Complex, located at 1045 Horsehead Road in Pikeville, Tennessee, Zip code 37367. Now, lots of thank yous. A big thank you to all of our sponsors who helped make this episode, this series, and really all of our work possible. We could not continue to investigate wrongful convictions and try to help those wrongfully convicted if we didn't have our sponsors. So if you want to support our work, if you want to support the folks that we are trying to help in our series, please support our sponsors. They make the production possible. 
Thank you to our Wizard of Oz, who keeps everything running like clockwork behind the scenes, executive producer Mito Telhan. Thank you to our audio producer extraordinaire, Rebecca Lavoie, host of one of my favorite podcasts, Crime Writers On. Thank you, Baluki, for our logo, Patrick Cortez for our theme song. Thank you to Linda Bozeman and the family of Greg Lance for working with us in order for us to do an investigation into this case. And a huge thank you to my legal intern for this entire series, Asakureshi, who has just put in days and days and weeks and weeks of going through documents and organizing things and just making my life easier. And finally, thank you all of our listeners for staying with us case after case, year after year. Follow us on social media. We're on Twitter at the handle at undisclosed pod and remember to tweet us your questions for the undisclosed addendum using the hashtag UD addendum. We're also on Facebook and Instagram and our website is www.undisclosed-podcast.com. Now is the chance to use reliable energy to grow your money with the Dominion Energy Reliability Investment. Our new investment product offers competitive returns, no maintenance fees, and flexible online access to your money. Make the reliable investment in reliable energy. The Dominion Energy Reliability Investment. To find out more, go online to reliabilityinvestment.com. That's reliabilityinvestment.com. A road is just a road, but a Jeep SUV isn't just an SUV. Come see for yourself at the Jeep Start Something New sales event. During Owner Appreciation Month, finance get $3,750 total cash allowance on the purchase of select 2020 Jeep Compass Latitude 4x4 models in dealer stock the longest. On oldest 20% inventory of 2020 Jeep Compass Latitude models as of 1-3-2020 in dealer stock. Financing for well-qualified buyers through Chrysler Capital. Not all buyers will qualify. Residency restrictions apply. Take delivery by 2-3-2020. Jeep is a registered trademark. Something extraordinary has happened to Judy Sizemore's closet, making it feel more like a closet. 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 An area that once caused claustrophobia now has enough space, space. space to hold all of Judy's striped boat neck sweaters. And Judy Sizemore has a lot of striped Stripe. boat neck sweaters. sweaters. The Container Store Alpha Sale is here with 30% off Alpha and installation. The Container Store, where space comes from.